We're in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. So, young theologians, you, you young Christians, as you listen to this passage that I'm going to read from Hebrews 10, <clears throat> notice something that Jesus does. He does something really unique here in this passage. Jesus is our priest. That is, he stands between us and God. And as our priest, he offers himself to God. And in this passage, the pastor, the writer, writing this letter to his friends, explains that when Jesus offered himself to God, he then did something that no other priest had done. Listen carefully and see if you can hear what it is. It's there in the text What did Jesus do that no other priest had done? This is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are drawing near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be with us. Would you come and grant your spirit, enable us to understand. If you don't, Lord, we'll just be groping around in the darkness, confused. But we pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe your word, and to trust in it for life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite seminary professors was a homiletics professor that's preaching. He was a preaching professor. They actually do teach classes on preaching in seminary. And one of my favorite professors taught that subject. He had a doctorate, if you can imagine this, 
a doctorate in speech communications. I don't have a doctorate. I don't want a doctorate. He had a doctorate in speech communications. That means he reached the pinnacle of academic study and practical application, too, of speech communications. As you can imagine, he was very refined and very skilled with words. I mean, he knew how to use words, both in written and spoken form. The seminary, as institutions like this will do, would put out a quarterly magazine publication and mail it out on a different topic, each a theological topic or something with some different articles. And one of those issues covered the counseling topic of perfectionism. That's a concern for many of us, perhaps, and, uh, or should be, anyway. And he wrote the introductory article in the inside cover of the magazine introducing the topic of perfectionism and, and seeking to dispel it as something that Christians, you know, something that we should grow out of and, and get beyond. And yet we recognize our imperfections. And, and so to finish this very brief introductory paragraph, he placed an intentional typographical error at the end of it. He repeated the last sentence. And for those of us who knew him, who know him, we smiled and kind of laughed and sort of smirked at the perfection of his imperfection. It was just placed just right, and it was just the right thing. The last sentence just repeated, a typographical error, you know, kind of a statement on, on his own to say, I'm not perfect either. It was a perfect imperfection, but he knows his own heart well enough to know that he's not perfect. Those of us who know him know that he's not perfect either. And you're not perfect either. I hate to break that news to you. I know some of you are just gasping for breath, aren't you? I'm not perfect? What do you mean? You're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. None of us are. Perfection is on the mind of this pastor writing this letter. At this point in the letter to the Hebrews, perfection is of interest to him even though it may not have been on the mind of the Hebrew Christians who were receiving the letter. It's probably not what they were thinking about because they were facing trouble. They weren't worried about being perfect. They were just thinking about staying alive. These Hebrew Christians in Rome probably were facing circumstances, political and social and other sorts of circumstances, that tempted them to turn away from Jesus, to renounce their faith in Christ a very apropos letter for our day and our age, they were tempted to quit, to turn back to their old ways, to go back to to Judaism, which they had known before. They were Hebrews, after all. They were Jewish Christians. And so this pastor, this person, unknown to us, wrote this letter to encourage them, to exhort them to continue, to press on. He wanted them to understand who it was that they would be leaving if they were, in fact, to leave their faith in Christ. Who is this Christ anyway that you would be turning away from? You need to know that before you decide to go in another direction. And so, he explains to them Jesus. That's really what the the book of Hebrews is. The letter to the Hebrews is an explanation of Jesus. Have you figured that out yet? That's what it is. It's It's a long letter. It's long in terms of having written it with your hand, because if you or I wrote this letter with our hands, we're not used to doing that. It's a long letter. You probably haven't ever written a letter as long as this one with your own hand. And he spent this entire letter 
explaining to them who Jesus is. And so he gives them kind of a synopsis of the letter. He, he explains to them, you may remember, that Jesus is greater than angels because these people in the first century were intrigued by angels. Angels were important to them. And they looked upon angels as very, very significant. And, and he explained to them that Jesus is greater than the angels. In fact, Jesus is the creator. He's the one by whose word all things came into being. And then he explained to them that Jesus, being greater even than angels took on a lower position, becoming a man. God became man. And as such, Jesus was greater than Moses. These people surely revered Moses. And so he explained that Jesus is greater than Moses was because after all, Jesus is the one who actually gives us rest. Moses was called to lead the people into the promised land to give them rest. And Moses didn't really fulfill that. Jesus is the one who fulfills that. So he's greater than Moses. Then he explains that Jesus is greater than all the priests that they look back on their Old Testament, on their Bible at the time, and see and read about, and even knew in their day and age. Jesus is greater than the priests who lead the people to God, who, who stand between God and the people. He's greater than they are because he's not a priest in the order of Levi. He's not born of the tribe of Levi. He's a priest without beginning and without end, like Melchizedek, that mysterious character from Old Testament times that's hardly known and is is very mysterious, one who has no beginning and no end, Jesus is greater than all the priests. And now in chapter 10, he, he gets to this point to begin to explain more about who Jesus is. The covenant that he's brought is greater than the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant. And as John preached the last two weeks of July, he brings even a new liturgy to us, a a new way of worship as we recognize that Old Testament earthly worship pointed to the heavenly worship that Jesus leads us into. And now in chapter 10, he begins to wrap up this theological explanation of Christology, the study of Jesus. And he'll begin soon, in the middle of chapter 10, to to begin to say, therefore, now what? So what? And he begins to make all kinds of applications regarding faith and the life that flows from it. But before he does that, he first explains that Jesus brings about a perfection that gives freedom. Not a perfection that brings demands upon you, which you do to yourself, but a perfection that brings freedom gospel freedom. And he begins by recalling the old covenant, which was a perfectly repetitive shadow. He explains it. In verse 1, he says, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, the realities he's talking about, we're at the end of chapter 9. That is that Christ is the heavenly fulfillment of the old covenant sacrifices. Those sacrifices, those old covenant worship forms were a shadow of the good things to come, of, of, of Christ and his heavenly fulfillment. Now, you know how a shadow works, right? You know, a shadow casts the image of something that actually exists with a light behind it, you know? And so a shadow merely gives you indication that something actually is there, It's not the shadow itself, but it's what casts the shadow. The shadow is really important, but it's the reality of what the shadow is showing you that is 
what, what truly matters. Now, this was a long shadow, as he's explaining it here, a very long one for these people, and so somewhat hard for them maybe to step out of. After all, the Bible they knew was the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament in our Bibles and the New Testament as well. And if you ever entered into a one-year Bible reading program, then maybe you've been discouraged when you recognize that you won't finish the Old Testament until the end of September. I mean, it's 75% of the Bible. It's a long shadow, right? It's, it, there's a long way to go in order to, to walk on through that shadow. It can be kind of hard to escape, not just because it's long, but because there actually was very appealing tradition that these people knew as Old Covenant Hebrews They knew the traditions of the temple. In fact, that might be why their church was planted. If you remember, it could be that in the book of Acts, these Hebrews were in Jerusalem for the the festivals. And it was there that they heard Peter preach uh, um, uh, in Acts chapter 2. And they returned to Rome and planted a church. And so they knew the temple traditions, which were very appealing. Now, you have to think about this. If you know some of your Old Testament, you know that the Jewish people were called to come to Jerusalem, to, to, to travel there, and it was a celebratory time once a year. They would come together. It was almost like a religious vacation. They would come and gather in the holy city and, and come for the Day of Atonement and bring sacrifices to the temple and, and have feasts and enjoy the presence of their friends and family. It was a, a celebration because it was, well, the Day of Atonement. God was going to, to again remind them of his forgiveness of sins for his people. It was a celebration. And the temple was a magnificent place to go and to visit, I can imagine, with the sights and the sounds and the smells and the, the feasts that they partook in and enjoyed, and the priests in their holy attire going about their, their work and the rituals that had been going on for many, many, many generations at that point. It was comfortable to them. It was appealing. It was something that they enjoyed. It was encouraging to them. It was traditional. Maybe it was their version of consumerism. You know, maybe it was their version of, of what we kind of know as the things that become comfortable, the things that we like. Well, we just do it this way. And if this place doesn't just do it this way, then we're going to go somewhere else that does do it this way. Christians consume today, don't we? We all are kind of inclined in that way. We want things to be the way we want them to be. However, it's comfortable for us. We make ritual props out of all kinds of things. But the law, the rituals, were not without their purpose. After all, they were a shadow. They were a shadow to point to the reality. Again, you have to remember that God's progressive revelation throughout history, from Genesis to Revelation, God has got one plan and he's working to to develop one culminating goal of establishing his kingdom, again, in the new heavens and the new earth. The Old Testament is not the end-all, be-all. It's enormously important for us. Enormously, because it's the shadow that points us to Christ. The law is perfect in that sense. Not that it makes you perfect. It doesn't. But rather, it shows you your need. It points you to the one who casts the shadow. It points you to the one 
who deals with your troubled conscience. This is a part of that repetitive shadow here. He goes on and explains, It, that is the law, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. If it did, then why are the worshipers still conscious of their sins, he says. Clearly, the sacrifices that were offered in the old covenant ways didn't really do the job, he says. They didn't really address your troubled conscience. Temple traditions were very appealing, but they were repetitive because they were ineffective. They had to be done again and again and again and again, year in and year out for generations. They could not clear one's conscience. In fact, he says in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's what they did. They, they cast a shadow. They reminded you of sins. They didn't actually clear your conscience of them. Now, we're getting to the notion of a guilty conscience, and that's kind of a problem in our day and age. We have to recognize that it is. For some of you, it's a problem because you have one, and you're not quite sure what to do with it. And even as a Christian, you struggle with your guilty conscience. It just kind of hounds you, and you can't seem to escape it for whatever reason, whatever sorts of things make you feel guilty and even use the word in wrong ways, applying to yourself. For many others, it's a problem because, well, in this modern age, what is guilt anyway? I mean, who are you to call me guilty? Who are you to say that this is right or that's wrong? What is the notion of guilt anyway? What does it mean? Well, we all kind of have our rituals. There, there was a, an article in the Dallas Morning News, I think it was just yesterday, about atheists who gather together for church. And the term church is very controversial among them. Some of them don't like that word, as you can imagine. But some of them do, and they take the word and, and have an atheist church gathering. And one of them, the, a man who is the founder of the North Texas Church of Free Thought, Put it this way, and it's interesting to hear his thinking on it. He said, if you remove the supernatural, then churches are just social institutions anyway. And you know what? He's right. If you remove the supernatural, then churches are just social institutions. That's all that they are. Um, Tim Keller is, is one of the, the kind of leading thinkers in our denomination and and, and one of his thoughts, it really wasn't even his thought, he got it from somebody else as he was reading, Um, but he explained it this way. He said, you know, there's no sense of guilt, then there is no supernatural. There is no transcendent. There's no real meaning beyond yourself. Now, of course, that's just what the atheist wants to say. There is no supernatural. We're just going to remove the supernatural. We're going to remove the transcendent, and we're going to gather together as a social institution. But the trick with that is this. How do you remove the supernatural? How does the created one say to its creator, you don't exist? I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and pretend you're not there. You're not, you're not there. I'm going to remove the supernatural. How can the one below remove the one above? Supernatural is what's above. How can what's subnatural, remove what's supernatural. It can't. It's logically impossible. I mean, it's a, it's a logical fallacy of, a, of an atheistic, ritualistic argument for such a thing. 
The fact is, there is guilt. If there's no sense of guilt, then there is nothing beyond you. You are God. So bow down and worship yourself, which is ultimately what we want to do. There is guilt, in fact, but how did God deal with it? You know, back in chapter 9, which John preached a couple of weeks ago, the writer says this. He says, sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Christ offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works, he says, to serve the living God. To purify our conscience from dead works. What dead works? Well, I mean, he's looking back on the Old Covenant. Surely he's thinking of the sacrifices, the animals and such, that didn't really do the job. We don't do those sorts of sacrifices anymore. We sacrifice plenty of things, though, don't we? We offer all kinds of dead works, all kinds of efforts to please God, all kinds of obedience that we're going to, you know, Lord, I'll just do this. This time I feel kind of guilty, so I'm going to do this now. And we offer our dead works all day long. And, and the writer says, Christ offered himself to purify our conscience from those dead works so that we could actually serve the living God. You know, the, the atheist does the same thing. He offers dead works, his own goodness, his own efforts. And it's just a repetitive shadow to prove that something really is there. The question remains, what will you do with your guilt? And so the writer leads on in to God's answer to that, that he provides a perfectly complete atonement. This is what God provides, because it's impossible for blood of animals to take away sins. He says, consequently, Christ came to do the work of divine atonement, to to do the work of atonement. And he goes back to the Old Testament and quotes from Psalm 40. And, And you see that quote there in the text before you, if you're looking at it. He quotes, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. I've come to do your will. Oh God, he quotes this passage from David's psalm, Psalm 40. But if you actually look back at Psalm 40 and and looked at the words there, it's slightly different. It's kind of an interesting insight, maybe into our interpretation of it. What David wrote in Psalm 40 was actually something like this, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but you have given me an open ear. I think it's a Hebrew idiom that means something more than an open ear. We use the same kind of thing. If, you have, if your ears are open, it means you're listening, you're able to hear, which then means that you're going to do, right? You're going to translate from your hearing to your doing. And the writer does that in his interpretation here. He says, but a body you've prepared for me. In other words, I've heard what you said, now I have a body to do it with. And this is an indication, surely, of the incarnation, which is distinctive of Christianity, that what God requires of us, He provides for us. But again, there's sort of a a problem here because there's a requirement of blood. And that's a part of the Old Testament covenant, the the Old Covenant rituals of sacrifices that required blood. And, And that's troubling for us in our day and age because, well, it seems so primitive, doesn't it? I mean, it just seems kind of barbarian to require blood, to kill animals. I mean, that's just, 
It's kind of cruel, isn't it? Why blood? And that's an, an objection for, for many skeptics who look at, at Christianity and think, well, I don't want anything to do with a God who requires blood. But if you think about it, you know, even as, as they ask the question, why can't God just forgive if he wants to forgive? It would be much simpler if he could just do that. But nobody can do that. You know that by your own experience. You know that. All forgiveness is a form of suffering. It always is on the part of someone. If you're going to reconcile between two parties, someone is going to suffer to some degree or another. You know, you could, on one hand, make the offender pay. If someone has offended you, you can hold it against them and make them pay for their wrong against you. Even as they're admitting it and saying, I did wrong to you, you cannot receive their, their admission or their confession. You can refuse to forgive them, make them feel bad, and make them pay. They're suffering. You're making them to suffer. The irony is that you also suffer because your heart grows hard against them. Your heart begins to grow hard against yourself and surely against the gospel. The other option is that you suffer to forgive. That you actually do forgive... And then you struggle to continue to forgive because it's a struggle. It requires pain and effort. It requires your blood, in effect, as you deny your desire to hate the person, as you deny your desire to dwell on their offense, to bring it up again, even in your own mind, as you deny the desire even to talk about it with other people, to justify yourself. Oh, yeah, you know, that happened between us, but it was because stop. It's painful to deny yourself those things. It costs your blood, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard not to declare your own justification. For all of us, it is. I think for me, it's harder the older that I get, even. It's harder to say, I know I was wrong about that. I mean, I've had four decades of life experience. Surely I know something, and I must know more than you. And... I'm not wrong. We, know we all do that. It's, it requires blood to reconcile. In order to reconcile, to be at one with each other, atonement is necessary. And there are various atonement theories among theologians as they talk about these things. One of the older ones is what some call the moral influence theory of atonement. That is a theory that Jesus came as a moral influence on us in order to live a good life, to influence us to have better morals, to you know, be like Jesus, see what Jesus did, do what he did, and your morals will improve. Okay, there's some truth to that as you see the life of Jesus and, and follow after him. You know, something should change. But that's a, a, a faulty notion of biblical atonement. That's not all that it was. Others say it's a ransom, that Jesus came in order to pay a ransom to the evil one, to Satan, in order to buy us back from our bondage to sin and to Satan. Okay, there's some sense to that that's true, but that's not entirely it, because it's, it was not to Satan that God owed anything. He didn't owe him any payment, so it's not exactly a ransom. Others call it a satisfaction atonement that our offense to God was against his honor, that, that our rebellion against God offended his honor, and so a perfect sacrifice was required in order to 
to restore God's, to satisfy God's honor. But it really wasn't God's honor that was offended in our rebellion. Rather, a substitutionary atonement, maybe it's what we maybe more closely uh, uh, relate to as we think about our own theology. That is that our sin violates God's moral law and is subject to justice, as it were, and Jesus substitutes for us to fulfill that justice, both in his life and in his death. He is our substitute. And for ages, efforts at atonement were made according to the law. For ages and ages, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, he says. But when Christ had offered for all time himself, he sat down. Young theologians, did you hear when I was reading earlier? Did you hear what he did? What was the unique thing that Jesus did? He sat down after he did the divine work of atonement. He sat down because his work was complete. And it leads to a humble result in us, as it should. Psalm 40, as he quotes it there, actually makes two points. One of those points is that Christ came to do the Father's will. He took on a body to come and do what he had heard commanded. The other point that it makes is that the Father was actually never satisfied with blood. The sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Covenant actually never did satisfy God. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In these you have taken no pleasure. David wrote in Psalm 40. This writer repeats here. But the law required it. Why are they now saying that God didn't like it? God required it. It was in the law that God required Remember, it was just a shadow. It was looking forward to something greater. He did require it. It never pleased him because it never did do the job. That's why Samuel, the Old Testament prophet and priest, would say to King Saul, after Saul had grown impatient waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice that a priest was supposed to offer and King Saul did it instead. Samuel came and rebuked Saul for it and said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as in simply obeying his voice, Saul? In other words, no. Saul, you've just belittled God's law by throwing down an offering on the altar as though that's just going to check off the box. What God wants is for you to obey his voice, Saul. King David learned that lesson. When he wrote in Psalm 51, he said, O Lord, you don't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings, but rather a broken spirit, right? A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Now, that's the humble result of the divine work of atonement. We don't readily show these things, though, do we? I mean, our... Nature, yours and mine, is more like what we heard from Numbers chapter 20 a while ago when Tyler read the Lectio Continua passage. There, You remember the story there. The Israelites began to quarrel against God because, well, they were thirsty. They were wandering in the desert. They were thirsty. It's a normal and natural thing to be. And they began to gripe and to complain and to grumble and to quarrel with God over that. And... So, Moses responded. When God said to Moses, the people are thirsty, speak to the rock, 
I'll bring water out of the rock. The people will drink. Moses was angry. Moses was impatient. Moses was quarreling in his heart. And he struck the rock twice, in fact. Now, maybe Moses was sort of in his mind trained in his own sinfulness as to what had happened sometime before when the people were thirsty and God told Moses, strike the rock once and water will come. He did. Water came. This time God said, speak to the rock, Moses. Just speak to it. Water will come. And Moses, in his frustration, struck it twice and took the credit for his own apparently miraculous work. I quarrel in my heart over simple things, don't you? I mean, I quarrel in my heart when I get stuck in traffic. I quarrel in my heart when somebody lets me down. I quarrel in my heart when I burn the toast on Saturday morning. I quarrel in my heart because I'm not perfect. You know, there are two ways to cover your imperfection. There are two ways to do it. One of them is to offer dead works. Oh, Lord, I, I quarreled. I was angry. And I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be better today. I'll go and buy my wife flowers. I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll pay the price. I'll, I'll, make it, I'll do atonement for my sins, Lord. I'll offer dead works. And then I'll be good. I mean, in in Hosea 6, the Lord said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 1, he actually said, your vain offerings are an abomination to me. Don't just throw it up on the altar and then walk away like you checked off the box. I don't want your offering. I want your heart. It's what I want. David was right. The other way to cover your imperfection is a broken and contrite heart. As David said in Psalm 51, And the writer explains, he says, And by the will of God you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Are you perfect? No. No, you're not perfect. But you are sanctified, meaning you are set apart. Can I put a different phrase to that? To be sanctified, to be set apart? It means that you're designated for grace. That's what it means. You are designated for grace. To be a perfectly adequate people, which is the other part of this passage here. In verse 14, the writer offers a, 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 a short verse that should really stick out to you. It's one of those verses that just kind of is a memory maker in Scripture if you're paying attention to it. He says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's almost like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. He, he's saying, God has perfected you, and now he's sanctifying you. And we tend to think of those as the same thing. If I'm perfect, why do I now need to be sanctified? Because I'm perfect. But if I'm being sanctified, am I really perfect? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting verse here. I think it involves a couple of things here. For one, God's declaration about you. He says he has perfected for all time. Perfected, that word perfected, teleosis in Greek, has a sense of of a purpose being fulfilled, a goal being reached. The goal has been reached for you. And what is the goal, after all, in the gospel? It's reconciliation with God. That's the goal. By the offering of Christ, you've been made perfectly adequate for a relationship with the Father. That's what you've been made, even as you are still being sanctified. 
Now, a declaration has been made that establishes a process that has begun. I've talked about this before with you and, and, and explained justification and sanctification and how enormously important those things are in the Christian life and how you, you must recognize and grow in those things as, you, as the Spirit works. Your justification, that is God's declaration of you as righteous in Christ, is the grounds for your sanctification, that is, your growing in grace, your being sanctified. The two work together. They're inseparable, but one comes first, the other follows after it. Our problem is we like to reverse them. Our heart wants to put our sanctification first, and we offer dead works, right? We want to to feel our guilty conscience telling us, okay, you did wrong, now do something good and make up for it. And God says, I don't want that. Don't give me your dead works. Just give me your heart. I have declared you perfect. I've declared you to be righteous even as you are being sanctified, even as you are growing in grace. In Christ, you are legally perfect. By the Holy Spirit, you are progressing in holiness. Your acceptance before God is not based on who you are, but on who he has declared you to be. Perfect. And as though we weren't going to understand and and take all that in, he reinforces it by explaining not just God's declaration, but God's recall. He quotes from Jeremiah 31 in verse 15, and he explains that the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. So Christians, listen. The Holy Spirit is at work bearing witness to you because the Holy Spirit said, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31. I think it's interesting to recognize how the Bible uses the Bible and attributes the Bible to itself. The Holy Spirit said, no, Jeremiah said that. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit said through Jeremiah in chapter 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. I'll write them on their minds. But that's not the point he wants to make. He says, then he adds, that is the Holy Spirit, adds what? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, be clear, understand this. God doesn't forget stuff. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the omniscient one who made all things, it's all in his head. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't even learn it. He already knows it. He doesn't forget. God is not going to forget, but he's going to choose not to recall. And that's grace. You know why? Because he's the one who suffers the pain of atonement. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion on the face of the earth. God is the one who chooses not to recall. He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will choose not to recall them. I will suffer the pain of atonement so that we can be reconciled. And this is what he's done in Christ, in the flesh. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's a remarkable thing. And as an encouragement, even in Jeremiah, to take this quotation further, the writer of Hebrews doesn't give us this, but if you look back at Jeremiah 31, what follows, these words there, here's what the Lord says to reinforce it. 
he says, Thus says the Lord, he said, I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Do you hear that? Can the heavens be measured? We've been, for, for thousands of years, people have been trying to measure the heavens. We've been sending spaceships out into heaven, and they hardly get started after 20 years of flying out into space. Can the heavens be measured? No, they can't be measured. Can the depths of the earth be explored, the foundations of the earth? Uh, we've gone, you know, sort of to the bottom of the ocean, maybe a few people have. But the foundations of the earth can never be explored. I mean, what God is simply saying is, if those things happen, then I'll cast off the people. In other words, I'm never going to cast them off. Those things are never going to happen, and I will never cast off my people. I will never recall their sins again, because they are in Christ graciously perfect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Lord, have mercy. Would you grant that we might believe and trust your word? Father, we pray that you would give us faith to believe this good news and to follow after your way to recognize that, Lord, you in Christ have declared us to be perfect. Even as we struggle with our own sin, as, even as we recognize the darkness that is in our own hearts, even as we recognize our love of temptation and we struggle with ourselves to say no to it, to turn away and to trust in you and walk after you, you have declared us to be graciously perfect. And in that, you have said you will never hold our sins against us. Now, O Lord, give us your spirit so that we might Continue to grow in your grace and walk in your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.